In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For those who love our Lord more than anyone and anything, nothing compares to the joy of Easter, his glory, his triumph, his victory. Imagine the, imagine the overwhelming joy of those who, 2,000 years ago, loved him above all, above everything, were convinced that he was of God, and feared that he was dead forever and they would never see him again. Can we, can we even begin to imagine their joy on Easter morning? I'm still trying to imagine the joy of those who love God above everything and everyone else. Because when I pray the Stations of the Cross from San Alfonso's Liguri, I have to admit, I should love God above absolutely everything more than I do myself, but sometimes I don't. Are we left out of Easter joy? I don't think so. Imagine then the Easter joy of the average Christian, or what it can be, what it should be. Our Lord has suffered for your sins and is undaunted. He is victorious. He returns to you. He returns to you to encourage you to even more perfect reconciliation to him, more perfect discipleship, more perfect charity for your brother. Because not even your sins, not even my sins, have sent him away forever. Imagine that joy. Imagine the joy that should be ours. The Lord appearing to St. Peter. The Lord appearing to St. Thomas. Amazing. It's not the joy of, I have no cares in the world. It's the joy of, God knows everything about me and has done everything for me. Overwhelming. You can imagine there's lots of people who visit church on Easter Sunday, and that's a beautiful thing. We should welcome that. And we do welcome that. So if you're visiting, welcome. We're not even halfway done with Mass. Granted, Easter is a time like a few other days of the year when families go to great lengths to make sure that they are together. So there are many places where the the faithful, those who are really practicing, are in places where they aren't usually on a Sunday morning. 
My brother, sister-in-law, niece and nephew surprised me last night driving down from New Jersey for the Easter Vigil. But we also know there are lots of people who visit Christian churches on Easter Sunday out of habit, respect, sentiment. Not that, not that this is something that is um, much more than an anniversary that ought to be honored every year. Now, Christians are accustomed to their churches being turned into museums. In many, res- in many places, it's where the most beautiful art will be found, the most beautiful architecture. It's where the most beautiful music will be heard, typically. With the parish pilgrimage to Italy, leaving in, in two days, I'm painfully aware, again, of how many absolutely gorgeous churches are available for anyone to enter, to pray, to admire for free, and how many have been turned into museums where you must pay $5, $10, $15 to go in. Even if you're with the priest, the priest can go for free, but everyone with the priest, even though they're pilgrims, have to pay the regular fare. Some of those churches, government-owned churches, of course, in Italy, have a special pilgrim entrance. In some cases, like in the Duomo of Florence, it affords you uh, everything that you need to see. The sanctuary, the apse, the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, the transepts, it's glorious. And in other churches, the pilgrim entrance shuns you off to a chapel that isn't even connected to the main church. The people who visit churches as museums may very well think that then when they're in our company, they are with those who, of, of weak constitution, need the consolation of Jesus Christ risen from the dead to save us from all of our ills. I think it's worth a few extra minutes to consider what really people should fear. With several people having died in the last few weeks, some uh, suddenly and uh, surprisingly, People being afraid of death is a, um, not only a familiar thought, but has led to an unusual meditation. So bear with me for a little bit. A lot of people are afraid of death. But if there's... N- If the resurrection didn't happen, if this life is all we have, then we shouldn't be afraid of death. If there's no life after death and there's no there there, then there's nothing to fear. 
you know the various philosophers and non-philosophers who have taken those thoughts to, um, to their logical conclusions, Heidegger and others. No reason to be afraid of that if I won't even be there after it happens. And so for those people who don't believe, then there really is no need to fear death. Be confident. Enjoy your life. Without apology. Recognize that Christians haven't responded to uh, a solution to their weaknesses. Christians have responded to a challenge. What's, what's scarier? Death when I just simply fall asleep? Oh, I think everyone enjoys falling asleep. Or eternal life where your actions, your decisions, your dispositions have eternal consequences. And only those who are perfect are able to enjoy the perfect glory of heaven for all eternity. The alternative being being separated from God in agony for the rest of time. Death where that's it and you just simply fall asleep or an eternity of consequences for everything you do and everything you are. Which is the, which is the consolation? Which is the easy solution to life's troubles? Which is more difficult to embrace? Which takes courage to undertake? Two thousand years ago, this type of meditation wouldn't have been necessary because for Christians, there was no ulterior motive. The truth of Christianity is borne out not just by the historical consequences of the resurrection, its place in Roman and Jewish history, but just by its very own internal logic. What 11 men or 12 men or 400 men would concoct a religion that does not afford them hope of anything other than hatred, persecution, and certain death? Meanwhile, giving them no advantage in any earthly endeavor whether it be personal, financial, military, political, or otherwise. Who would invent a religion like this? Who would invent the Beatitudes if it's not true? Who would invent Christianity if Christ didn't rise from the dead? Nobody. Now, there are plenty of ulterior motives for being Christian. The club gains you admission to certain associations, helps you get a job, helps you become, become part of a family, advances your career, helps you meet beautiful people, powerful people, rich people, makes you feel important, gives you some consolation. 
all sorts of ulterior motives for being a Christian these days. It's an advantage. Not in every part of the world, but certainly here. Plenty of ulterior motives for going into religious life, for the priesthood, the clergy, the hierarchy. Money, fame, power, influence. Ability to do many things without being questioned. Right? We know all about that. Plenty of ulterior motives. But when we consider the resurrection in its reality, and when we consider the faith of a Christian who really believes this, then we see the stakes the stakes are even higher for those with bad motive. It's already an accomplishment of the impossible for God to take a willing soul and sanctify them and bring them to heaven. But God taking a hypocritical soul and turning them into a saint, not very likely. No, what I want to suggest is that it's only if we think that everyone goes to heaven that Christianity all of a sudden becomes a Hallmark card, Hallmark card solution for every worry. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not a, a, a balm for our wounds. Christianity is a challenge. It's a challenge to live for eternity as opposed to the comfort of living for today. It's a challenge to live knowing that everything you do and say, every disposition of your heart has eternal consequences. Are you willing to embark on that road? That's the road that leads to Emmaus, that leaves Jerusalem and goes to Rome. That is the Christian way. So we need to leave behind all that we abandoned and lent and not pick it up again. The comforts and the indulgences. With a small I, not a capital I, of course. Self-indulgences, I'll say. No, we need to live Easter faith with sincerity. It takes bravery to, to do this. What, who, who, who would do this unless they actually knew it were true? And why do it unless we're doing it as though it's true? And there's no reason to do it unless we're actually trying to do it. What I'm suggesting is that it's not just the Christianity of 2,000 years ago that in and of itself proves its truth because there couldn't be an ulterior motive but Christianity properly embraced in the world today still has no ulterior motive. And when we take it up in that vein, what, what does it mean? It means we, are, we tremble. We tremble that, that we, are, we are walking on water. It's not just the goal every step is, is an impossible task that only God can accomplish to sanctify me, to sanctify my thoughts, 
to make holy my words and my actions, to purify my intentions. And how is this sustained? It's sustained by the life of grace, of constant prayer, of the sacraments, of the divine worship. It's sustained by our encouraging each other, encouraging each other, and when we find each other fallen, to help each other get up, and to when we find ourselves to be fallen, to be willing to accept help in getting up. This is an impossible task unless we take advantage of everything that's been given us. And so, so we, we turn to the Lord and we see him in the triumph of the cross. And we are consoled, but we realize what lies ahead for us. Death and eternity, if we are brave enough. Thank God he's given us good example and good company and the good help of his grace and his sacraments to make this journey worthwhile and to bring it to completion. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.